Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us at hoover.org forward slash strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we take on the topic of our most recent issue, Will Europe Recoup Its Military Capacity? And joining us now to discuss this is the author of this issue's historical backgrounder, Andrew Roberts. He's an honorary senior scholar at Keyes College at Cambridge University, the author of a dozen books, including The Storm of War, which won the British Army Military Book of the Year Award, and he is also a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and a director of the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation. Professor Roberts, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Great honor to be invited. Okay, from the beginning of your piece for Strategic, I'm quoting you here, the NATO rule that every member country spends at least 2% of its GDP on defense is now recognized more in the breach than the observance. Germany running at roughly 1.5%, Italy at 1.2%, Spain less than 1%. Yet taken as a whole, the European Union has a GDP that outstrips either China or the United States, at which point you brilliantly and poignantly, given the topic, paraphrase Churchill, never in the field of human conflict avoidance has so little been given by so many for so much. So let's start there. Given the rate of Europe's contributions, is it even reasonable to really think of NATO as a partnership in the true sense of the word anymore? No, it's not a partnership at all. It's a racket. Um, It's a way for the American taxpayer to be mulcted out of cash whilst the European taxpayer doesn't do enough to um, pay for his own security. That's what it is really now. Um, And it has been for some time. And to be fair, everyone really accepts that, I think. Uh, Secretary Secretary Gates, when he retired, uh, gave a coruscating overview of of the, the way in which this has been going on now for decades. And so... Um, I think in order for anything to be done about it, the Americans have got to make a pretty credible threat to uh, withdraw their uh, security from the United States. And to do that, I think, would require an enormous amount of political guts. Well, let's talk specifically about some of the countries involved. We'll start with Great Britain. Uh, British defense spending at present, 2.5% of GDP, lowest level since 1931. UK was spending an average of... 9% per year during the 50s, 4% during the Cold War, the 60s through the 80s. So what happened from then to now to send that number plummeting for Britain? Margaret Thatcher was overthrown. Uh, Really, up until um, the time in November 1990 that uh, she was um, uh, politically assassinated, she was spending a, a reasonable amount of money, an amount that we could um, look the United States in the face with, 4%, uh, 4% which, is, um, which is a little under what the United States is paying at the moment, but, uh, but nonetheless, it's a, a respectable figure. Um, as soon as she fell, the Conservative government after that, under John Major, declared a, quote, peace dividend, and brought that figure down to 3.5%. Not absolutely disastrous, but nonetheless, it came down. And then, of course, it, uh, it, since the year 2000, it's collapsed to this uh, figure of 2.5%. 2.5% is a lot more than Germany and Italy and Spain, but it's not enough for a country that prides itself 
on having global reach and a special relationship with the United States. Now, sort of an interesting wrinkle to this analysis of the of the continent is France. I mean, France is one of the few countries that does go above that NATO minimum of 2% on the GDP spent on defense. If, if I read you correctly, you're not entirely bullish on the situation with the French, but they do seem somewhat less anemic on this front than some of the other countries on the continent. Tell us why the situation is a little different there. Well, it's a little different because the French are a little different, aren't they? I'm not just <laughs> speaking as an Englishman. Um, I think it's pretty fair to assume that they have got their own, um, well, they've got their own nuclear uh, weapon, the force to trap, of course. They've also got a, um, a long history of looking independently at their own national interest. The fact that they've come in and out of, of NATO um, a couple of times shows that. They also, of course, have actual interests in uh, places um, like, like Mali and North Africa and, to an extent, Libya, even Syria. Um, many of these were former French colonies. They look, as uh, they, they do at the world, through post-imperial um, spectacles, rather like the, like the Conservative Party in Great Britain does occasionally. And so they need to spend 2.2% of GDP, but it's not a lot, is it? 2.2% of GDP, and whether or not it'll be enough for America, uh, sorry, for the, for the French also to look the Americans in the eye is, um, is very questionable, it strikes me. Now, what about Russia? You note in your piece that the Russians actually increased their military budget by 25% in the past year. Is there any prospect that the sense of Russian um, confidence, belligerence, call it what you will, any prospect that that could have a catalytic effect on the rest of Europe when it comes to their defense spending? I think it's the only thing that could have, uh, really. One can't really uh, anticipate an invasion from China. It's uh, unlikely that um, that the same kind of horrors are going to return to the continent as we saw at Srebrenica and uh, in the breakup of the um, Yugoslavia in the early 1990s. So, no, the thing that will um, make uh, ministers, European ministers, sit up and try and spend a little bit more money on defence is the um, sabre-rattling of Vladimir Putin, the way in which he behaves towards uh, uh, countries like Georgia and and Ukraine, this this big naval building programme of his. Um, that would be the thing that uh, that finally encourages Europeans to spend more, um, unless, of course, the Americans just fling the um, the umbrella over and over the Europeans and uh, make them feel so secure that they don't feel that they have to. When we look at this development with the continent, uh, to what extent do we, and I realize we're talking about a number of different countries with a lot of different dynamics, but speaking in broad terms. You know, we've talked about some of the material factors of World War II, mid-century, followed by the Cold War thereafter. How much of this is attributable to those sort of outside dynamics and maybe a feeling of being insulated from external threats in a way that the continent wasn't before? And how much of it is attributable to a, a sort of cultural shift? I mean is the, the European mind or for that matter probably more specifically the British mind, the French mind, the German mind – is it qualitatively different than it was in this earlier era where there was more spending going on, or is this just sort of a, a rational reaction to the sort of defense subsidy that comes through NATO? 
Well, I think that's a very good question. I think that one of the most interesting of all the uh, many interesting articles on, st- in, on Strategica on the website is that by Joseph Joffe, who argues that um, that there is a uh, that there is a cultural shift. There's a cultural shift that's taken place in um, in Germany, and frankly, it's a cultural shift that everybody wanted. Um, you know, Germany unleashed five wars of aggression. Um, between 1864 and 1939. One doesn't want Germany to have the same culture as it had in the 19th and uh, early 20th century, obviously. And so, um, you know, there is, a, there is a positive side to that. But frankly, um, there's no need for the British or the French to go down that route. Um, and, uh, and the Germans can take it too far. Now, I think um, we could... There's a, there's a slight point at which one can go too far with this. Um, again, a very good article on the website, on the Strategica website, is the one by Corey Sharker, who, who argues that, that we can take this too far. The Europeans have, after all, fought uh, for 12 years in Afghanistan. They have done positive things in, in Libya, and not just the British and French, even the sort of Norwegians and the Swedes and people like that have actually sent troops. The drawback is that these are really, by and large, except for the British uh, contribution in Afghanistan, pretty small and pretty um, uh, peripheral. Uh, the, the the real weight of, uh, of world security does uh, still fall on the United States. Now, obviously, the United States is a, a very rich country, but it's not as rich as Europe put together. And therefore, it simply shouldn't be forced to, um, to pay these uh, swinging penalties. Now, let me ask you a question that I've put to every one of our participants in this discussion about Europe, which is if you're talking to an American audience, which we can assume we primarily are here, although there's going to be people from a number of different countries listening, and they hear this discussion about Europe, an area that when it comes to international relations, national security, maybe is not at the forefront of their mind in the way that places like the Middle East or or China are sometimes, and they hear about this sort of decline in the European attitudes towards national defense. Um, for your average sort of American voter, uh, why should they care? Why should it matter to them that there's been this sort of sea change in the way that Europe approaches these kinds of issues? Because it costs them. Because one of the reasons that you're you're paying uh, somewhere between 4.4 and 5 percent of your GDP on um, on uh, defense is because your European allies aren't picking up their share of the tax. Um, it's, uh, they should feel exactly the same way as if you um, happen to be sitting next to some huge glutton who was overeating at the table next to you in a restaurant and you were having to pick up his bill. <laughs> uh, let me ask you then, um, because you, you touched on this at the top of the program, and this, this will be the final question. You talked about the fact that this would take sort of the United States – taking a hard line through through NATO and making very clear that this arrangement couldn't hold. Um, what do you think of the realistic prospects of that happening? What would sort of have to occur, since it hasn't thus far, to be a political predicate for something like that to be viable, something that could actually – you could actually see the American government drawing that hard line with the nations of Europe? There you stump me. There you stump me completely, <laughs> because frankly, because frankly, I don't see it. It would require so much toughness on behalf of the of an American administration. Um, I don't think it could be done by uh, by any politician that we're seeing 
uh, at the moment, in uh, either in power or in opposition, it would require a really cool-headed, uh, tough-talking um, uh, American president who uh, who was willing, in the final analysis, actually to see um, to see Putin uh, prevail. <laughs> You're not going to get one of those. At least I, I truly hope not. Not for a very long time, anyhow. It's. Um, it's really a um, going to. We're going to carry on with this with this tradition whereby every um, every Secretary for Defence who uh, leaves uh, office and every that's U.S. Secretary of Defence who leaves office and every Secretary General of NATO who leaves office are going to give their uh, farewell addresses, uh, saying that America that uh, Europe must pay more, and no one's going to take any notice of them. All right, my thanks to our guest, Andrew Roberts, honorary senior scholar at Keyes College, Cambridge University, and member of the Hoover Institution's Military History Working Group. You can read his piece and those of other members of the group by visiting Strategica at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. Thank you for listening.